I'm Tracy Metz. Right now, I'm at South Street Seaport in Manhattan, and I'm standing in front of an installation, a colorful, brightly lit, noisy attraction called the Water Arch. It's fun, you get a little bit wet, and it gets you thinking about just how much water we actually use every single day. When I tell you, I think you'll be shocked. This is Water Talks. Water Talks is a podcast about the 2023 United Nations Conference on Water and the New York Water Week, made possible by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. This series of five programs is about the weather, and to be more specific, about water. Too much of it, too little, too dirty, and too unequal. This is the third episode, and we're calling this one Too Little. The water arch was created by the Dutch artist René van Engelenburg and his studio Drop Stuff. The arch is part of the UN Water Conference and the New York Water Week. I admit the arch is fun, but what's it all about? The idea is that we show in one instant how much water we use per person per day on an average, which is in the Netherlands, 36 gallons. And here in the United States, it's even 82 gallons. Only 82? 82 per person, per day, gallons. And you can step in, you turn a wheel, and while this happens, water is being pumped up in a big tank above your head. So the wheel is the pump? The wheel is the pump. I see the tank filling. Yeah. And this tank will contain 134 liters about 36 gallons. And that is what a Dutch person on average uses every day? Every day. And how about the Americans? And here in the U.S. that's even 82 gallons, so more than 300 liters. Oh, wow. What do they use all of that water for? I have no idea. (laughs) But I have one impression, because they have very big uh, washing machines. Everything is much larger than we are used to. And this thing looks like something that came from a county fair, and there's music and lights. Yeah. In our work, we often try to make combinations of fairgrounds as a form of cultural heritage, arts and technology. And we presented them both on the streets and in galleries so that many different kind of people can notice the stories that we try to tell. I think playfulness is a big part of our work and the way of storytelling. You hear the girls giggling up there? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and they go under now with two people, which is officially not allowed here in the U.S. <laughs> but they will become a bit wet now. <laughs> and it's their own fault. Yeah. <laughs> the reception of the water arch seems to be great because <laughs> today there were over 330 people. Yeah, which is quite cool because we are in, in public space and it was a bit rainy today. And still people like to try it out. So the relationship between the water behind us and the water in your tank is very close. Yeah, we were invited here by the Seaport Museum. and It's an open-air museum, and it's literally on the piers, and we have big boats of historical importance around us. The installation looks a bit small compared to these big ships, 
But yeah, it's very much inside and people come from everywhere to look for what's happening there. And I think the fact that they're having a good time makes the message land. Yes. I'm really sure that if you tell the story in a playful way, that people will take it earlier and easier. And meanwhile, people will have laughed about the water and started thinking about the water and hopefully realized that we are really part of this story. It's not just something that the engineers and the technicians can fix for us. A lot of things can be fixed by new innovations, but you have to get the story told for a wider public and they have to be willing to take part in this story. Great. Thank you so much, Janae. Yeah. Okay. Well done. <laughs> I love the way Janae van Engelenburg gets us thinking in a fun way about how much water we use every day. Use and waste. 70%, yes, 70% of the water we use every day goes straight down the drain in the shower. And then there's all that bright, shiny, tasty, clean drinking water we flush down the toilet. We have to do better. The amount of fresh water is dwindling. As Mr. Water Hank Oving said earlier in this series, the fresh water supply on our planet is as thin as a coat of paint. Even a country as wet as the Netherlands could be facing a shortage of drinking water by 2030. That's just a few years from now. And now let's hear from someone for whom water shortages are a daily reality. I am a member of the Don Autumn Nation, which means desert people. That's Austin Nunez. He's a Native American tribal leader from America's hot and dry southwest. He lives on the San Javier Reservation right outside Tucson, Arizona. He's in New York representing the Indigenous Environmental Network, at the UN Water Conference. He and his tribe were not getting the amount of water that had been promised to them when the US government took their lands. So the tribe took the federal government and the city of Tucson to court, and they won. We were demanding our water rights. We realized we have water rights because of the fact that the government placed us on our reservation and they guaranteed us to provide for health, education, and welfare, which includes water. We reminded them that they have that obligation to us in taking the land that they took from us because we needed a good supply, reliable source of water, and the government at that point was not providing that. So that's why we had to force them into court to help us regain our water rights. So that took 23 years, and in the end, the federal government passed a law called the Southern Arizona Water Rights Settlement Act, through that, we are getting volumes of water from the Colorado River. They had to build a 300-mile pipe system from the river to Phoenix to Tucson and then to us. This is a major victory. Yes, we're glad that our prayers have been answered. But we now realize, too, that with climate change, there is a limited supply of water in the Colorado River system. But there already was a limited supply <laughs> to begin with because everyone else has their straws in the river system. We've been going through a 20-year drought. We're having to deal with cutbacks. We continue to um, pray for more rain and snowmelt and the Colorado mountains to supply the Colorado River system. Prayer is good, but action is better. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Austin's tribe understood that the American economic system looks at water as a commodity. But he and his people see water as something else entirely not as a commodity, 
but as something spiritual, something that belongs equally to all humankind. We have always been told by our Creator that water has a spirit, water needs to be safeguarded, and water provides our way of life, whether it's a river system or lakes or the oceans, it provides our sustainability and has for thousands of years. There must be tremendous tension, Austin, between the conviction of the indigenous peoples that water is sacred and a right for everybody, and the growth of urbanization in places like Tucson and Phoenix, the fastest growing cities in the U.S. because people like the climate, and therefore water is increasingly scarce and increasingly a commodity. We advocate that water should not be viewed as a commodity. And I know this is very hard for the general population of the United States to get away from because we've always been dominated by this economy surrounding the dollar. And we as indigenous people have always planned for seven generations ahead. We talk now a lot about thinking like a good ancestor. Absolutely. That's something that your tribe and other indigenous peoples have always done. That's correct. I'm often surprised how little thought there is for the world that we're leaving for our children, our grandchildren, generations after us. Yes, and that's who I think of because I do have grandchildren and I think of their grandchildren. So, yes. Thinking about posterity, not long after my conversation with Austin in New York, President Biden announced that the Colorado River was so empty that the federal government would be imposing restrictions on water use for California, Nevada, and Arizona, including the reservation where Austin lives. I emailed him to ask what he thought of this. He wrote, We will adjust and move forward in the best manner possible. We do have a supply of groundwater that we can rely on until the flow in the river is naturally restored to a higher level. Well, fingers crossed. Like it or not, groundwater notwithstanding, Austin and his tribe are dependent on the U.S. federal government to provide them with the water they need to survive. The people of Palestine are in a similar situation. They are fully dependent on Israel for their water. Rita Samamka is a young engineer from Palestine who I met at the Dutch Waterhouse during the conference. While she can't increase the amount of water Palestine gets, she can do something about the quality of that water. The situation in Palestine is really different from other parts of the world because of our special case. We are working to improve the water service. A lot of people still doesn't have a water network. They just buying water tankers to satisfy their water needs. It's very expensive and also you can't control the quality of water. Is it really good for human use or is it for irrigation? So it is worse for the financial issue and for the health issue. In Palestine, the most people is not covered by sewer network. So we are just trying to establish sewer network, wastewater treatment plant, to get life easier for people. And today, this afternoon, at the Waterhouse, you're presenting your work to the King of the Netherlands. Yeah, it's just a pleasure to do that. What are you going to tell him? We will tell His Majesty about our idea of how we will control the water quality with using a cheap water sensor, relatively cheap, and we will doing that using mobile app. So we will monitor the quality from our office without going to the field even. So that's quick. That's quick, accurate, a lot of data. 
you got data every second, every 10 minutes, whatever you want, you got data. Yeah, that make the quality of water really monitored. Also, you can improve it that the government also join to check where is a problem and they go solve it. That's save time, save effort and make the work really efficient. This idea will increase the trust between people and government everywhere around the world and increase the transparency in our governments. It's allowable for anyone to access. For, for any citizen. For any citizen to check the quality of water that you have in your house. And to complain to the government if it's not good. And to send your feedback. And also, if you travel to a new country, for example, I'm from Palestine. I just came to New York. I don't know, can I drink the water from the water tape or not? If I open my app, then I just know. Rita, so many young people with talent and education like you leave Palestine to work elsewhere in the world because they feel they have more of a career there. Do you expect to do that? A lot of people are doing that in Palestine and in many other Arab countries because there is little chance for people to work, to improve their self. But for me, I will stay in Palestine because if all of us leave, then who will build our country? That is Rita Samamka, a young water engineer from Palestine whose boundless optimism warms my heart. We've talked about Arizona, we've had a glimpse of Palestine, and now I'm back in the heart of New York. Boarding starts now. Do you want to be insider? We've talked about Arizona, we've had a glimpse of Palestine, and now I'm back in the heart of New York. I'm on a ferry from Manhattan, crossing the East River to Queens with the New York-based environmental performance artist Sarah Cameron Sunde. Hurricane Sandy inspired her to create a series that she calls 36.5, a durational performance with the sea. She stands in one spot for a full tidal cycle of about 12 hours as the water rises all the way up to her chin and then recedes. It's cold, difficult, even painful, but also poetic. Local participation is part of the piece, and she invites people to come stand with her in the water. And they do. 175 people joined her over the course of the day just here in Queens. If you ask me, I think she's trying to restore our lost relationship with water. Sarah has done this performance nine times all around the world, including in the Netherlands. But her last performance was here in New York, the city where she lives, in a cove off the coast of Queens. And when we turn around from the ferry, we look at Manhattan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you stood in the cove for the full tidal cycle with your face towards Manhattan. With my face towards the sea. I always face the sea. That's part of the logic of the performance, is that I'm always looking towards the sea. But from where I stood, you do also see a lot of Manhattan. Shall we walk over there? Sarah and I walk from the ferry to the actual cove, towards what must be one of the world's tiniest beaches. <laughs> and this is low tide compared to the other places I've done it. It was a small space. But that's New York, you know? The street's right there. 
And it's really rough and tumble New York, isn't it? With, yep. <laughs> it's stony, this huge concrete wall to protect the street from the tides and yep. rubble and exposed trees and the grade of the sewer and uh, really rough landscape here. How did you choose this spot, Sarah? It was a long process. I started searching for a site in 2018. I knew right away when I started doing the project in 2013, the final one would happen in New York since Hurricane Sandy had triggered the whole thing and since it's home. With 520 miles of coastline, you would think that there would be lots of options, but there are very few options where you can actually walk out and touch the water. Did you have to um, get a permit for this? I did, and uh, yes, I did. <laughs> it sounds more I got, like I should have, but I didn't. I got many permits, actually. There's a lot of bureaucracy at play. You know, New York is a city where you can do anything you want because there's a lot of freedom and artistic freedom, but then there's a lot of rules, too. And technically, the rule is, yeah, that you're not supposed to go in the water. Besides being fearful of what the water can do to you, there's a lot of fear of litigation. I talked to the Coast Guard, I talked to the Parks Department, I talked to Department of City Planning, Waterfront, I talked to everybody. And I tried to just make sure that everyone knew it was going to happen. Talked to the police, the ferries, everyone. So it was a lot of uh, logistics. And did they understand what you were getting at with this project? I had a lot of people helping, so that's good. There's some people in the world who are just not going to understand. As humankind, we think we stand apart from nature, that we are nature's master. The climate crisis makes painfully clear that we are not. New York was built on the water, but as Russell Shorto said earlier in this series, you can hardly get to it. Sandy inspired Sarah to physically give herself over to the water, to the movement of the tides, to nature. That's the thing about New York the built environment has kept us away from the water. I really believe that not being able to touch the water means that we don't have the same level of care for the water. We're not thinking about the problems and the challenges and how we need to function as a healthy society in relationship to the water. There are not many places in New York where you can actually get to the water. It was all built for shipping or for infrastructure, but not for people to actually contact the water. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of fear around touching the water, but I think it's changing. There's more and more people who are demanding that we have better access. And I'm sure that Hurricane Sandy made a lot of people both more fearful and more aware. Hurricane Sandy really shifted the perspectives for a lot of us. I hadn't contemplated the water so much I thought we were invincible and then all of a sudden it showed us that we are certainly not. Maybe that's why I think Sarah's work is interesting. It's a manifestation of vulnerability and strength at the same time. She has a slight build. When I see the videos of her on her website standing in the water for hours on end shivering as the tide recedes I wonder is she going to be okay? But slight as she is, she is tough. She sees her physical ordeal during these performances as a metaphor for humankind's larger struggle to survive the climate crisis. Sarah shares Austin Nunez's deep conviction that water belongs to all of humanity in equal measure. 
I think that perspective is something that we really need in most of Western culture right now. And we really need in order to actually survive the climate crisis. I think we need indigenous voices. We need that wisdom to come into the mainstream in a bigger way because that is where we can find true reciprocity as humans with the more than human world. So that's been really inspiring to me. And I think we need the work of artists as well who can show us how different our relationship to water can be. Just standing there in the water for a full tidal cycle, it really touches people in it. I think it makes everybody who has been part of this look at the water and the cycle of the water in a different way. I guess it's because we all have this intrinsic connection to the water. When we're living our daily lives, we don't always recognize it. I was also wondering, just practically speaking, what are the criteria for the spot you choose to stand on? You have to be able to not drown. Yeah. That seems like a good criterion. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the, the yeah. tide comes up. I've seen your videos. The tide comes up to your chin. Yeah. So I spend a lot of time hanging out with the water, getting to know the water, figuring out how high she will rise on the day of the performance or trying to predict it. You know, I've learned that tidal predictions are only predictions and it can always change. It's about being out there far enough so that I can be separate from the space and feel the vulnerability, but also close in enough that we can capture it on film. And then what are the other things? Calm waters, calm enough so that it doesn't knock me over or, you know, I would never be at an ocean where there's big waves because that just wouldn't work. Yeah. But can you always remain standing? Yeah, pretty I can much. imagine that at some point you would also start to float and then you can't keep your footing. How do you do that? I've learned some tricks along the way. Oh my gosh, there's so many stories <laughs> of moments of failure, um, which is all part of the journey too. I ended up figuring out the best way to have like a little contraption, a rope, so that I could hold on when the tide gets really high. I don't hold on until it's like up to my chest and then I do really need something to hold still. But there have been moments like in the Netherlands, I didn't have that rope and I got moved. <laughs> Despite my best attempt to stay still, I thought the water was calm enough and it wasn't quite as calm as I thought it was. Yeah, so there's always a little bit of trickery that goes into that moment, but. It must be exhausting as well, Sarah, because just the simple fact of standing for 12 hours is exhausting. What is the physical experience of the tidal cycle? It is exhausting. Every time it's been painful for different reasons. I think that for me, that's part of the point, though. I live a relatively easy life and I don't have to deal with that much struggle, physical struggle on a daily basis. Some people around the world and even here in New York do have to deal with that in a much bigger way. And I guess I'm thinking about this metaphor of how do we as humans survive in the face of the future that is coming with the climate crisis and sea level rise. And so recognizing that there will be struggle, there will be pain, and trying to recognize the strength in our bodies while also having deep reverence and surrender to the water, letting the water teach us what it needs to teach us and letting go. There are so many lessons to learn. <laughs> but the physical struggle is real. That was the artist Sarah Cameron Sunde. Today's show is called Too Little. 
Too little water is a problem that directly affects our survival as a species. But too little contact with it, taking it for granted, commodifying it, seeing ourselves as divorced from it, is how we got into this predicament in the first place. If you ask Austin or Sarah or anybody in this program how to get out of this, it's by finding our way back to the water, reinventing our relationship with water. So too little is really a metaphor for our detachment from everything that has to do with water and all of nature itself. This week's show notes have links to the work of this week's guests, including videos of Sarah Cameron Sunda's durational performances with the sea and Renee van Engelenburg's Water Arch. Make sure you check it out. This was Water Talks, a program by me, Tracy Metz, written and produced together with Jonathan Gruber. Our theme song is called Into the Unknown by Poddington Bear with additional music from Jason Shaw's Running Waters. Water Talks was made possible by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. Next time on the show, Too Dirty. I'll be talking with people who demand that we clean up our act. People like Leon Poa of the Drinkable Rivers Foundation, landscape architect Kate Orff, one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in 2023, and wild swimmer Kirsten van Sante. That's next time on Water Talks. I'm Tracy Metz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>